Hello and welcome to UK Life Abroad. What do you think of when you hear the name Donbass? Today we'll be sharing some facts that you may not know about the area. Also, stick around as we introduce a new segment to the show. This and more on Zakordonia Ukrainsi, the podcast for all things Ukraine. Over the weekend, we held a poll across our social media platforms where we asked you, our listeners, what you guys thought about the design process that the Ukrainian parliament has launched to find and design Ukraine's great coat of arms. So we had three options. We had whether you approved the original design. Yes, the original design is um, it's a lion and a Cossack on either side of a trezub. There's very patriotic colours of blue and yellow. There's a flag, there's Kalena down the bottom, there's a crown. Like, it's very, very cool. Yeah, very so the lion represents Halachana while the Cossack represents central Ukraine. And they're, you know, united in supporting the Trezob, which is, represents Ukraine, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, so that design out of our listeners, you guys voted 93% yes that you approve of that design. And then we had the alternate design, which was proposed in the late 2000s, which looked like, Andre. Yeah, so it had the Trezop in the middle with a cross on top. It had Shemnetsa around it and it had a ribbon uh, going across saying Zname Boh i Ukraina, with us is God in Ukraine. Yeah, so that design only got a 38% approval rating. From our viewers. From, from our, our viewers listeners. or listeners. And um, then we had a third question, which was, should a completely new design be chosen? Well, this one had the least amount of people participate in the question, but out of those people that did say, uh, 66% said yes, that a new design should be chosen. So, I don't know what you guys think about that. Well, with the first option, there's already, it's already like sort of used because in the presidential office, I believe there's like one wall where in front of a meeting table, they already have this like Kazakh and the lion and they've got the crown and Trezov already there. So it's like being unofficially used. Yeah. And I think most people on Facebook as well, like in the comment section also agreed that the original design should be the one that's chosen to be the great uh, coat of arms of Ukraine. Um, I like the uh, one with that Andre was talking about with the Shenetsia because it, um, I think it's more modern. It's when I look at like these traditional coat of arms from like the past, I always thought they have like a cartoony kind of vibe to them because they're just like 2D. But um, I like this one because it actually has like depth to it. It's got shadowing um, and it actually looks more realistic as opposed to the traditional coat of arms that you see. So, yeah. Um, The reason why this debate has even appeared in the first place was because when Ukraine's constitution was being drafted, the pro-national democratic forces in parliament were a minority and so the Trezob was the, you know, will design the minor sim- the minor coat of arms of Ukraine because everyone can agree that it has to be a Trezob and then we'll just kick the can down the road as all politicians love to do. And Zelensky's decided that, you know, it's his turn to give it a go. Isn't this like the fir- fourth attempt? Yeah. Trying it's... to pass this? <laughs> so they've had many attempts to try and get it through parliament. So can anyone just make a design and send it through and get it voted on? Or does it have to be someone like some artist chosen by parliament? Um, so, I, I don't know if the competition's been officially launched, but I'm pretty sure, like, anyone would be able to submit designs. Like, remember when New Zealand 
tried to do their uh, redesign their flag, like anyone could submit. So you got some of the more hilarious yes, designs. Yeah, like the key with the lasers <laughs> and stuff. When they were like trying to rename that Manly Ferry on the, the ferry in Sydney, and what they came up with some hilarious names. It was name like McFerry Face. Yeah, something. Ferry McFerry Face or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but it was a lame copy of the British one, Bodie McBoatface. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so we'll, ho- we'll hopefully. We'll keep you updated as things progress and maybe, you know, fourth time's the charm. <laughs> So, a lot of investment has been made into painting a picture via propaganda and other means of uh, the Donbass region and it's uh, being a largely Russian-speaking uh, and Russian cultural area of Ukraine. Uh, and I think it's a good opportunity to give some good short facts around um, Donbass that might surprise you. So, Andre, Yeah, so... In Donbass, it was actually the home of the Shistisatnike, which was a pro-Ukrainian movement in support of an independent Ukraine. And so, one of their main slogans was Love Ukraine like the sun loves her. And this was written by Volodymyr Sosyora, who was born in Donetsk. And because of his statement for a pro-Ukrainian independence, he, ha- he was forced to be re- re-educated and was sent to a factory where he was also labelled a nationalist and a Bandarivit, which is in turn uh, a follower of Stepan Bandera's ideology. So, there are a lot of Ukrainian poets that were born in Donetsk and Luhansk Oblast where they tried to promote a more Ukrainian ideology within the region where a lot of them were persecuted for their just their views in a sense. So, another person that is very interesting in Donetsk was Anatoly Lupenis, who created a lot of groups within Donetsk where he formed the Ukrainian Human Rights Group Memorial, the Ukrainian Interparliamentary Assembly, which became uh, a self-defense organization. Now, another important figure is Vasil Stus, who refused Soviet citizenship because he didn't want to be a slave, as he said, in the Soviet Union, because he viewed it as derogatory to the Ukrainian nationality. I'm pretty sure they made like they've made two movies about him now, haven't they? Yeah, but like they're about similar things as well, though. So well, yeah, because they're both biographic movies. It's it's interesting. He's another poet. It's, we have something to do with poetry and um, and Ukra- oh, yeah, true. Ukrainian. <laughs> it's like every famous Ukrainian revolutionary starts off as a poet. Yeah, and I guess all have a court case and you know, prison sentence. It seems <laughs> so. Sad, sad tr- reality of. Um, Poetry in Ukraine. Struggle. Yeah. A British history of Donbass. So, a lot of people assume that Donbass was built by Russians and, you know, they settled the, the wild steppes of Ukraine. But in reality, both Donetsk and Luhansk were formed by different uh, British industrialists in the late 1800s. So, Donetsk was established in 1869 by Welsh businessman John Hughes, who built a steel plant in the area, and later the town of Yuzovska uh, was formed around the steel mill, which led to the foundation of modern-day Donetsk. And Luhansk was formed in 1795 by Charles Gasconing, who also founded a metal factory on the present site of Luhansk. And this was because the, the Donbass region at one point was the Russian Empire's largest producer of coal. And so uh, the Russians brought in 
a lot of British experts because they'd started the Industrial Revolution and so they knew how to build all these factories. Oon and Upa in Donbass. So, over the years, the resistance movement of Upa and Oon has been uh, positioned as being a Western or Western Ukraina kind of um, ideology and it was localized largely to uh, Western Ukraina. But that, however, is not true. And recently, a book has been put out by the head of the or the director of the Stepan Bandara Museum, Yaroslav Korchuk. And his book is titled Natives of Nadnip Pranchinya in the Upa. And in this book, he talks about how there were many different uh, members of the Upa that weren't just uh, Ukrainian uh, or ethnic Ukrainians. Uh, we had, there were, he mentioned Crimean Tatare were also in there. And he also talks about how there were people from Donetsk and also Luhansk that were in the Upa. And so in total for his research he found a total of 776 biographies of people from uh, Donetsk and Luhansk and other regions of Ukraine and i guess this is his way of trying to de- debunk this myth that pro-ukrainian movements were only localized to western ukraine and that you know there were actually pro-ukrainian movements in the eastern part of Ukraine as well, where everyone assumes that, that, you know, because it's close to Russia and it's influenced a lot by Russia, but that's that's not the case. There are pro-Ukrainians there as well. And I think it even stretches back further than that, that like during the early like ni- uh, 20th century when the Ukrainian People's Republic was declared, there was strong support in Donbass for Ukraina and they fought in the Ukrainian People's Army against the Soviets. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think the other part to, to think about there is that obviously, um, although at each each time that there was a declaration of independence, the borders were slightly different of what they considered Ukraine to be, largely those haven't changed, whether it's the, the, the two that we saw in the 20th century or, in fact, independence, you know, and the traditional, I guess, borders that were part of the Ukrainian SSR when it was part of the Soviet Union. So, yeah, it's, 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 it's good to remind ourselves of that. Renaissance in the East. So there's a volunteer and a singer, Angelika Rudnitska, and she has talked about how in these eastern parts of Ukraine that are under, you know, Russian control today, um, they there's this new Renaissance movement where art and traditional Ukrainian art and dance and literature is starting to um, sprout again. So to quote her, she says, something tells me that Eastern Ukraine is more patriotic than the rest of the country because they are bleeding and hurting. They are in tears and pain. It seems to me that total Ukrainianization will begin in the East. And so in saying this, she's citing that there's a number of new projects, theatres, exhibitions, and uh, she says music festivals. I don't know how that works with COVID, but I'm sure she's talking in the past. Um, And there's like this resurgence of Ukrainian culture because there's a need for that right now. Like she said, you know, they're they're hurting really badly and they need this influx of Ukrainian culture as a way of standing up against the uh, Russification of those areas. And this can also be seen um, in the voting trends because a larger portion of Eastern Ukrainians are starting to vote for more pro-Ukrainian parties in government. Traditional Ukrainian clothing. There's a common misconception that women in the Donbass region would wear traditional Russian costumes like the sarafan, uh, Russian jumper dresses, and kokoshnike headdresses. They're like these crazy, like tall tiara thingies. They're really stiff. They have, um, you know, they're, they're brilliantly colored. They have beading and, and tassels. Like they're really, really pretty. But as a matter of fact, uh, there are historic photographs and Soviet films from the 
beginning of the 1900s that showed Donbass women wearing different headdresses such as headbands, ribbons, wreaths and scarves, as well as uniquely patterned embroidered shirts and dresses. And this is really interesting because it shows that Ukrainian costumes are actually quite popular or widely popular in Luhansk and Donetsk oblasts, contrary to popular belief. The first Ukrainian dictionary. So, the first Ukrainian dictionary that was published was actually from Donbass by Boris Hrinchenko. And over the years, he collected numerous Ukrainian words from literature and commonly used words across Ukraine. And he organized it in Donbass. And so, the dictionary is called uh, Slovak of the Ukrainian language, which contained about 68,000 words. The dictionary is the most complete and advanced Ukrainian lexicon into the early 20th century. So, those have been some little-known facts about Donbass that you might not have known. And please share these with uh, other family and friends that you have so that they too can learn more about the region. And now, moving on to our new segment. So, the so-called Donetsk People's Republic have a very interesting way of um, commemorating their so-called leaders. And this takes us to a new segment that we're going to be starting. It's time for Silly Separatists. So, this person that they are honouring is uh, Alexander Zaharchenko. So, Brianna, can you give us some more information about him? Sure thing. So, Zaharchenko started off working in a mine and then he studied law. He became the head of the Donetsk branch of Oplot, which is an NGO established in Kharkiv, um, which has actually been recognised as a terrorist organisation. Oplot, or Stronghold in Russian, is a pro-government group based around a sports club in Kharkiv that claims to be the first fight club in Ukraine, led by Yevhen Zhilin, a retired police captain who champions the Soviet Union's legacy, the group was opposed to the Maidan protests and came to Kiev to, quote, help police restore order. So when you say pro-government, you mean pro-Russian? Yes. Then he transitioned to become Major General of the DPR, so-called Donetsk People's Republic, and then he became Prime Minister in 2014, only to be assassinated in his favourite cafe in 2018, which comes after reports that other separatist leaders also met their ends in suspicious circumstances. Yeah, and the cafe was called The Separatists, so it's kind of ironic that the leader of The Separatists was blown up in a cafe. I mean, Nathan, um, there was a bit of conflict as to who assassinated him. Yeah, so they were, um, the Donetsk People's Republic originally said it was the SBU. So, Ukraine Secret Service? Yeah, and they said that they were responsible for it. However, the SBU said no, it was a internal struggle for power within the um, DPR. So, at the moment, it's still unclear who is actually responsible for it. Yeah. I think the most famous one is, um, I think his nickname was Motorola and he got blown up in a lift. So I, I remember hearing about that one. Yeah. Most likely, though, he was probably assassinated by the Russian FSB because he'd started to deviate from their original plan in a sense, wasn't it? Yeah. So, after all of this, they have decided that the way they're going to commemorate him is with a bottle of vodka. In the news this week, 
September 5th was announced as the start of the local election campaign. President Zelensky's Servant of the People Party hopes to replicate its huge majority on the local level. On September 1st, Ukrainian students returned to school. Due to COVID-19, many schools skipped the traditional first bell ceremony. Starting school for the first time this year are children born in 2014, at the start of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. September 2nd marked the 24th anniversary of the Ukrainian hryvnia. Introduced in 1996, it replaced the karbovanets or kupon. It marked the end of hyperinflation in Ukraine. It is now in its fourth print series, with the 1000 hryvnia note being introduced in late 2019. After a 12-year restoration, the Mariinsky Palace was reopened to the public. Construction began in 1744 by order of the Russian Empress Elizabeth. It now serves as the ceremonial residence of the Ukrainian president. The palace is open to visitors Friday to Sunday with school tours taking place on Thursdays. Let us know which stories you would like to hear by reaching out to us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Join us next week for more Yuki Life Abroad content.